0: The opinions of the commentator or commentators are solely those of the commentators and not of CJAD 800 or Bell Media.
1: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
2: 906, welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, presented by Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. Hello, Josh. Hello. And this week on the program, we're talking wine with uh, Carolina and Alexandra from Onivino Wine and Spirits. They are on the way on Today's Entrepreneur. But first, a quick uh, chat, as we usually do, about some of the... um, the local business news and uh shall we begin with um you know we, we talk a lot about um retail on mm-hmm. on the program and uh how depressing it's getting in montreal of course we had a lot of major closures lately but there are some bright spots in montreal and one of the bright spots is um a clothing uh, a shoe company actually called off the hook now, well, what's t- tell me a, b- a bit about them because what I think is interesting is they've been given a very prestigious um, title b- from Adidas, like a, I guess a, a signature retailer, mm-hmm. which allows them, you know, special privileges, special products. Um, so here's one example of uh, of uh, the way that maybe one retailer can work if if they they get to that level of prestige, maybe.
3: Well, I, I think it's a story about finding your niche it's a it's a story about having creating I guess uh, a reason for the for the consumer to walk into your store uh, they've they've created or you know this brand this this retail brand that says you know what you want to buy high-end in style running shoes or type of shoes then by all means come come into our store and they've been around I believe 15 years and I think the great part of the story there's a couple of great parts but one of them is, they, they had a vision and they didn't believe they were too small to to go after a great strategic alliance or find a partner as huge as Adidas, so I think they they had the call it cojones to go after what they what they wanted to. They uh, wanted needed to fill some big shoes, I guess, and uh, and went after it. I think the other part of the story that's hugely, uh, I guess, inspiring is they talk towards the end of it about paying it forward. They realize they're the small guy. They realize that they've had some great success and in, in partnering with uh, with a large company like Adidas. And because they've dealt with so many smaller companies over the years, they're kind of trying to pay it forward too and giving them some advice and and kind of help them and help their suppliers and some of their consumers along the way. So I think it's a great story about a small company that that not only was able to dream big, but was able to make it big in certainly as far as partnering with a large company.
2: So maybe the lesson for retailers uh, downtown is if uh, if retail is gonna is gonna survive it has to bring another dimension that you can't find from just
3: anything that's going on uh, online. You got to be you know I think we say this constantly. Not only do you have to find your differentiation you have to find your unique value proposition, but you got to find the reason for the consumer to want to walk into your store. If there's no reason for them to want to walk in, if they can't answer the why of why I should go into that store, then it almost doesn't matter what you can you're gonna sell.
2: From uh, one retail uh, success story to a a startup success story in the uh, tech industry, Hootsuite, which is, of course, Canadian. And uh, there's still uh, uh, a lot of great buzz about Hootsuite. They're Vancouver-based. An example of, I think, uh, this is a social media management system. Mm -hmm. So it's one of these companies that would never have existed 10 years ago, right? Correct. And here you have uh, uh, what's going to become probably a, a... a company worth hundreds of millions of dollars one day, um, based on something that uh, that didn't even exist at, oh, just over a decade ago. And,
3: and and what the what the article or what their story is partially about is getting users, getting users to subscribe, but giving away their product and gaining that consumer base, gaining that call it list of of customers, list of email addresses, list of people that they can reach out to because that's where their value of their brand is going to lie. Yes, they've created a good software and a good platform, uh, no question about it, with all the social media. But they've also achieved the goal of hitting, I think it was 11 million users, 11 million users plus, and that is huge for anybody that's looking out to, for any marketing efforts or, or what have you, uh, notwithstanding the, you know, the castle, the uh, anti-spam regulations there it's, it's an absolute, uh, success story from that vantage point. Yes. They, they have a lot of employees They're, they have to constantly create product because when you have 11 million consumers, if you don't have the right product, then they ain't gonna stay, so they they do have to constantly. But to build that base and to build it off a a free platform, I think that's that's excellent. That's huge. It's a it's a great model. Now, of course, you need the investors behind you because if you're not collecting, on the uh, I think what they term the freemium uh, pricing, then uh, then you have to find it elsewhere. So, but here's my question, Josh,
2: because uh, a lot of apps, for example, uh, make money this way. You download the app for free, but they're collecting marketing data on mm-hmm. you. That, that's how they make money. So uh, that's why Instagram is valued at, uh, I think it was $5 billion or whatever Facebook paid for it, because of this, these mounds of, of marketing data on its users. But eventually, when all these companies have all the same data, uh, these tech companies—is that maybe where the bubble will burst eventually? When we have all this data that is that is now going to be so plentiful and not as valuable?
3: It, it might. I mean, you're you're talking about you know what what they term big data. So big data is finding trends it's for the large marketplaces, for the large retailers, for the large uh, B to B, B to C, to find out what the trends are in the marketplace, and when you can track. Uh, Because you, you can't readily give out certain information, but you can track trends. You can track, you know, if people are tracking, you know, 25 to 34 year olds and what they're buying or what they're doing, that's hugely important for those that are, that are trying to target certain markets. So that data and the trends that, that, that it can supply are absolutely huge for those that want to target their markets that much better.
2: Speaking of the uh, forthcoming tech bubble, uh, this is an interesting story uh, by Ken Tenser in the Globe and Mail. It's, uh, the, the headline says it all, Is Crowdfunding the New Tech Bubble or Just an Old-Fashioned Junk Bond? Um, we've talked about this before, Josh. My concern that uh, not everything that is necessarily popular um, in the crowdfunding space is worth doing. I, I refer to the pizza place in Indiana, refused service to gay Mm -hmm. people, they raised over, probably close to a million dollars by
3: now. Um, So not everything crowdfunded is is worth doing, right? Well, I, I think what people have to understand is if they're, if they're, they want to get into crowdfunding, they want to, and I'm talking from the investor's standpoint, forget the people that are looking for the funds. The people that are actually putting down money to get a free t-shirt or a free product or just to be in on the the beginning so they can tell a story, uh, I guess at what point does it catch up with you? It's one thing to give $25. It's another thing for, you know, with this equity crowdfunding that's coming in, another thing to start giving thousands of thousands of dollars. At some point, reality's got to catch up. At some point, people are going to want to have some return on their investment. And the crowdfunding, I'm just not so sure... That it's gonna have that return. The reality is, any new business that starts up today—not everyone's successful. You'll have your your one in ten, one in twenty, one in hundred, whatever the whatever the the proportion is. Not everything's going to be a home run. So those that are looking to get some funding from more of an investing nature of crowdfunding, those big dollars—I'm not so sure how long they'll last. And that's, I think, that the tech bubble—it, you know, analogy that he's referring to is at some point people will say. I need to invest that money to have a return and not just to do something nice or not just to get on the ground floor or something or not just to tell a cool story. And uh, I think that's where maybe the bubble might burst one day. I think we're not so close to it because it's still pretty new. But at some point, reality is going to slap somebody in the face. Do you like the comparison,
2: though? Is it a good old-fashioned junk bond? Is it a, uh, a penny stock? Is it something that investors
3: just take a gamble on? Uh, I think it's absolutely investors take a gamble on. I think it's basically go to the lottery store and, and, you know, at least, you know, here, I guess you can see what the product could be. You're seeing what the potential is. You're trying to giving your own input on what the future is like, but the reality is who knows. And from a consumer standpoint, it's absolutely rolling the dice.
2: Another interesting piece in the Globe and Mail real quick, uh, Ten tips for new businesses and in new industries, and uh, I'll I'll give you the top three, and maybe we'll get your thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Customers come first. Think big and have a vision that reaches beyond
3: profit. Uh, I think customers come first is the first and foremost of everything, and that is if it's in the best, I, I I repeat this maybe far too often, bit of a broken record, if it is in the best interest of your customer, it is naturally, essentially, and going to be in the best interest for yourself and your business. If your customer is happy, they're going to keep coming back, they're going to want to buy more, they're going to want to buy different. And that's what will help contribute to your bottom line. If your customer is happy, if it is in the best interest of your client, your customer, it will undoubtedly be in your own best interest.
2: Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD 800. Coming up, Caroline Brownstein and Alexandra Boak. Uh, they talk wine uh, from Ona vino, But first, it is
1: 7.15. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
2: Inspiring stories from outstanding business people. Dan Delmar and Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you on Today's Entrepreneur. And this evening, we chat with Caroline Brownstein and Alexandra Boke of Onivino Wine and Spirits. Caroline and Alexandra, welcome to CJD.
4: Hello. Thank you.
2: So first question is the easiest. Uh, What is Onivino Wine and Spirits? Uh, Well, I mean, it's obviously something to do with wine. And you brought some delicious wine in studio. We appreciate that. So tell us about your business.
4: So Onivino Wine and Spirits is a boutique agency specializing... Um, and importing really unique products, very innovative products, something that you don't typically find in stores, and we like to bring that to our clients, restaurants, private buyers, hotels, bars, and what have you. Um, So that's pretty much the focus is wine and spirits.
3: What makes it a unique product? Like what to you when you're searching out uh, a wine or a product or spirit, what to you makes it unique? And it turned to Alex, you know, she's she's the one eyeing. She's certainly got that that taste bite in there. She's got the
5: twinkle
4: in her eye.
3: Exactly. I
5: know about that. (laughs) Um, I would say that we're we're looking for products that aren't made on a giant scale, something that would show, uh, you know, different expression every year, something where the uh, winemaker can be creative and express something different instead of what the consumer might imagine that they want to drink.
3: Now, how did you ladies get into this? Like, what were you doing before One Vino?
4: So I actually was working for a small vineyard in Italy, and I was the director of sales and marketing for North America. So I had the opportunity of traveling around and seeing how importing and distributing alcohol worked. And I was just fascinated and absolutely loved that side of the wine business. And Alexandra...
5: I was lucky enough to get a job with a wine and spirits agency called LCC um, right after graduating from um, hotel management school in San Adèle, And so that's where Caroline and I happened to have
4: met. Yeah, so Alexandra was working for the, the company that was importing the wines that I was representing. And we pretty much ran to each other like in a field of daisies. We just <laughs> fell in love. It was instant. We said, one day we're going to make this dream come true. And, and we did. We started about uh, four years ago. And we've been going strong, mm-hmm. plowing through the market.
3: Now, what was the heart I mean, starting this business, you, you guys both had, you know, a certain amount of, of experience. You were in this industry, but yet you're starting something fresh on your own what were the first steps that you had to take? Uh, were you fortunate because you came from a certain domain? Like what, what was the, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, just of those first few months, I, I'll say.
4: I think the biggest advantage that we had was that we had formed really strong relationships in our previous jobs. So we were able just to knock on those doors and say, Hey guys, we're here. It's, it's us again. Whereas if we had just started out day one, most people were oversaturated and kind of saying, you know, we're not really accepting any new agencies and we already are very loyal to the ones we, Work with which we can understand, but having that kind of laid the groundwork uh, beforehand really worked well for us, and we're just so well liked, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, well, you know, if you bring a bottle of wine wherever you go, then you know yeah. you got to be liked to some degree.
4: <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs>
2: <laughs> institute with us, Caroline Brownstein and Alexandra Boke of Onavino Wine and Spirits at 723 on today's Entrepreneur.
1: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
2: This evening on Today's Entrepreneur, Caroline Brownstein and Alexandra Boak of On Vino Wine and Spirits. Uh, I want to ask you first, Caroline, Alexandra, did you really, uh, did this business come out of a a passion of yours? Uh, Was this the ultimate goal is to make your passion your business?
5: Absolutely. Um, We're both very lucky to uh, be driven by doing what we love every day because there's many obstacles and it's nice to have a, a reminder that you're just working with products and people that you love and care about.
3: And you know, you, you you mentioned obstacles, and I'm sure there are a number of them over the over the years and that you've encountered, but certainly getting into this in such a regulated industry, uh, you know, where we know the SAQ basically rules all, mm-hmm. how, how does it work, or how did you find it with the licenses and permits, and, and was that difficult to obtain? Uh, maybe you can quickly uh, give us, uh, recount us some experience behind that.
4: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of obstacles anytime you're dealing with alcohol or any regulated um, product, as you mentioned, but... There's also a lot of advantages to dealing with the SAQ, and I think that The experience that I had, having worked in a lot of different markets across North America, I was able to see the real advantages to it, where, you know, I know that my suppliers are going to be paid on time, and it is quite organized, although very, um, you know, red tape and and Mm -hmm. whatnot, but it it is really well-structured. So I think that we do appreciate, as much as we are sometimes banging our heads against the wall to figure out how things are done, but it's just a lot of trial and error, and we've made a few mistakes and learned along the way, so... We we grow every day.
3: Now you guys <laughs> complement each other pretty well. Like you know do you overlap in your roles? Like what what do each of you kind of specialize in in your own respective business?
4: Well, it actually does work out perfectly. And I often say this, I think that in our business, a lot of times it's driven by strictly wine passion or the love of wine. We both do love wine, but Alexandra is a real specialist in wine. She's an advanced sommelier. She's working towards her master. So she has the real love of the wine. And then I'm more um, really passionate about the business of wine. So I'm more of the numbers girl. And that's how we complement each other really well. So when I'm explaining to people People what we do on a daily basis because people often ask they can't really understand mm-hmm. I say that Alexander will be tasting a wine and really picking it apart and saying where she could see us selling it and why and I'm just you know with my pen and pencil saying, or my pen and paper just saying Ali it's too expensive we can't mm-hmm. do it and you're like please come on so we pretty much go back and forth like that
3: <laughs> So Alex how, how do you manage that the combining the business side with hey you know this is the most amazing wine we absolutely have to bring it in and when Caroline looks at you and says Are you crazy? It's far too expensive. It'll never sell. We have to keep too much on the shelf. Uh, How do you deal with a situation like that?
5: Well, I think having experienced ordering wines that you can't sell, the uh, trauma of being stuck with uh, buying your own product has really uh, molded me into making more, uh, I guess, safer choices. But it is hard because sometimes I really do love something that, you know, not everybody... I mean, wine's a funny thing. People want to try and taste new things, but they also only want to spend twelve fifty. So it's kind of, you know. Bienvenue au Québec, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I,
3: I get the picture. Yeah. Now, now, part of this, uh, certainly from, a, you know, it's great, it's a lot of fun, it's, a lot, you know, wine, everybody's loving it. But, but behind the scenes, I mean, if you're dealing, how many SKUs, how many wines do you deal with?
4: We have over a hundred products We so, uh, deal with 30 wineries.
3: So 30 wineries, a hundred products uh, automatically that screams, how do I manage all the inventory? How do I manage the timing and bringing it in and making sure it gets out and make sure everything gets stamped and, and my customer, I mean, that inventory management aspect that I don't know if you dealt with in your prior life before on Avino, but how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you manage that? And what have you learned?
4: It makes me feel alive.
3: Because <laughs> <laughs> you I have no to choice.
4: Caroline. Yeah, it's really um, quite challenging. And it's funny, I was speaking to a friend of mine who runs his own company and asked he asked me, so is it like just-in-time inventory? And I said, no, it's actually the opposite. <laughs> mm. It's never here when we need it, and then we always have too much when we don't. So <laughs> it's a really challenging thing, especially because we buy a few months in advance. So we'll be buying for, you know... Christmas very soon because it takes several months to get here um, and then of course the cash flow is always very challenging and it is like doing I, I haven't done an MBA and I've often toyed with the idea of doing it and I say I'm doing an MBA every single day running mm-hmm. this company so it's a lot of um, Excel spreadsheets and just playing around with uh, with numbers which I quite enjoy to be honest
3: which means you're, so you're not using a software you kind of build nope. your own build yeah. your own monster
4: yeah we actually built a friend and I um, built a really advanced uh, Excel uh, spreadsheet that pretty much calculates everything for me, um, so it's it's really quite advanced and we're very, very happy with that.
3: Now, there's no doubt that when you have all this inventory and you got to manage it in the cash flow, there's got to be customers, there's got to be marketing that comes next. So when we come back from the break, we'll hear a lot about that part of, of your business at Onivino. Caroline Brownstein and
2: Alexandra Boke of Onivino Wine and Spirits this evening on Today's Entrepreneur at 7.30. <music>
1: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 7.35
2: on Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller, and our guests this evening, Caroline Brownstein and Alexandra Boak of Onivino Wine and Spirits. Let's uh, move on to marketing, guys, and let's talk about how you put yourselves on the map. It's um, been only four years, Mm -hmm. you said? So four years, and uh, you guys have uh, certainly made your mark. How did you do it in in so little time?
5: We... uh drove a lot of wine to a lot of different establishments and did a lot of tastings and had a lot of parties and just keep going.
3: Just make sure that the right bottle is in front of the right people. Exactly. And that's what, that's what you push. hmm mm-hmm. Now you, when you're, you're getting, I mean, I presume you have a lot of restaurant clients. Yes. Uh, but there are a lot of one-offs. There's very few chains, I guess you deal with. So you, you do have to kind of see and meet a lot of people. Exactly. How do you, you're two of you, how do you get to everybody?
5: Well, thank God it's a very competitive industry and people don't want to see that much of you. So that really takes out uh, a bit of the stress. And I think if you just manage your time properly and you know who you're going to see with what wine and it's, it's something that's manageable once you get the swing of it. You come on shows like CJD and talk about your wine.
3: <laughs> that, that that can't hurt. No no, no. question about it. <laughs> We're going to take and, the week off. <laughs> as long as they can all find you, right? You yeah. know, uh, onivino.ca or wherever they can find you. Exactly. Well done. So prompted, you know, you, you give me a little wine and I'm 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 able to, to plug anything to plug yeah. almost anything like putty in our hands. <laughs> exactly to me. The bottle is not quite done yet, but it's getting close. Mm. Uh, so so tell me, what about from an online aspect? Are you you know are you embracing that the social media and the online, does does that work for you? Or is it really that, you know, be in your face and make sure the product is in their face or some combination thereof?
4: Definitely a combination of the two. We have some wines that we'll post a photo on uh, Facebook or Instagram and people start calling us, I want that, it looks delicious. We're like, all right, more power to you. (laughs) Looks
2: delicious? How does the wine look delicious? So
4: funny, just from the label, sometimes people are so attracted to it. We're like, that's Mm. such an odd comment, but okay. (laughs) But a lot of the times we do have to get in front of people and they do need to get a, a sip of that wine to to really know.
3: Now, are you constantly searching for new customers? And if so, how do you how do you reach out to them? How do you find them?
5: Uh, we. Try to reach out to new clients, but this is one of those businesses where you want to work with people that you've developed a relationship with just because um, the restaurant industry can be a bit touchy and, and it's probably safer for your your pocketbook to be dealing with people that you know are still going to be around in the next uh, little while because it's an investment on everyone's part, right? There's time, there's tastings, there's visiting the client, there's bringing people there. So we're we're all trying to support each other.
2: Montreal must be really um, interesting in that respect and dangerous because there's so many, I mean, most restaurants are independent. There's new restaurants opening up all the time and closing all the time. How do you guys make sure that the uh, people you're selling to aren't going to be out of business in a week from now?
5: Praying a lot of praying. <laughs> no, I mean I think you get a sense of who's doing well and and why they're doing well, and I think it's just a, a bit of logic, and and there's no surprises really when you hear something's closing. Unfortunately, there's always a, a few signs, you know. So,
3: and and you know, I, I, Dan, after the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about closing a restaurants and kind of the anatomy of a of a restaurant in bankruptcy. Uh, but in the meantime, as we come to the marketing and your and your customer base, does that mean have you said no to a customer before? I mean, you're kind of just starting out. But And you you want to get all your customers, but have you had the ability to say no?
4: It's a funny thing. When you first start your business, you're really hungry for it. So you'll say yes to just about anybody. And then as time goes on and you've been burnt a few times, you start to become more selective. So yes, I have to say in the past probably year and a half, we've really tightened our... uh... our belt and sort of had to say no to a few few customers
3: and do you monitor your competition i mean there's so much so many people out there selling people might not know it but i'm sure there's a ton of private wine importers Mm -hmm. uh, and spirit importers how closely do you keep tabs on them or i mean there's so much product out there how do you manage that
5: well it's a small big industry so i mean uh, you end up doing events that are, you know, industry related. So you're always getting a sense of who's doing what. And there's all sorts of trade magazines that are relevant to our market. So I think it's kind of hard to not know what's going on and keep up with uh, the trends.
3: Do you go to trade shows? Absolutely. Do they work for you?
5: Yes. Yes. To a certain extent,
3: <laughs> hesitation, and and you know we we we've had a number of entrepreneurs on the show, and they kind of run hot and cold. Some of them say trade shows are absolutely awesome; it's mm-hmm. it's a great showcase for them. And others say, "Well, I got to attend, I got to walk around, I want to see what's out there, but it doesn't really do very much." So, in your industry, does it work for you?
4: We are very selective um, as to which shows we participate in, and the ones that we've chosen to work with have it's been maybe three years running that we do the same ones, and we're very happy with them but we've definitely declined uh, to participate at, at others that just don't fit what we do.
3: So. No, it's it's bang for the buck, right? It's not cheap. Right. It takes time, dollars and effort to to go. You, you got to make sure there's some type of return.
4: Absolutely. We're also building a
5: brand, so it's kind of hard to establish what the instant, you know, effect is of our participation is as well. Sometimes you just got to make people curious and thirsty and then maybe on the next order they'll be interested. So it's it's not as cut and dry as we would like it to be.
3: Now, now, there's no doubt there's got to be associations, whether it's wine importer or wine or spirits associations. Do you belong to an association in your industry?
4: We do.
5: You can we-
3: point to each other, but nobody can see.
5: I just pointed <laughs> at Caroline. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Uh, We are part of an association of private importers. So although we do have a few products that are listed in the SAQ, so wines that you will find on the shelves, we focus mostly on private imports. So we have joined what's called Raspi Pav, which is an association of all the private importers in Quebec. And believe it or not, there's over 400 agents in Quebec doing this Mm. so we're all kind of behind the scenes nobody realizes uh, all the work that goes on behind it but um, it is a great group and we do um, host two events one in the spring and one in the fall and uh, it's an opportunity for the buyers to come and taste and you know private buyers as well can come and buy single unit bottles as opposed to full cases Mm -hmm. which is the only time of the year where they can do that and it's a really really great time
3: do you find that your association is more collaborative than competitive? Again, we've heard some conflicting stories of other entrepreneurs say, "I don't want to join because you know they steal ideas," or, or it does you know it's too cutthroat? And others that say, "You know what? Everybody respects each other. We get we we collaborate. We share some fantastic ideas, and it works." So, how do you find that association?
5: Um, I really like it and I think that we've, it's been very beneficial to us so far. We tend to have more, um, allies than, than foes, but I mean, there's always uh, a mix of everything in every industry. So you just got to be weary, be a trust.
3: Now you said you deal with about 30 different wineries. How do they assist you in marketing their product?
4: So we'll have um, the representative of the winery, whether it be the winemaker, the owner of the vineyard, depending on the size, or the export director, will come into the market once or twice a year, sometimes at this wine show that we spoke of in the fall with Raspi Pav, otherwise it'll be just a random visit during the year, and we'll organize some tasting events, some tastings with restaurants, winemaker dinners, which are really a lot of fun, where we can um, pair the food with their wines, and it's a really great time to showcase the products of this one winery. And that works really well for us.
3: Now, your two of you. Do you have any other people working with you? Uh, what you know, what kind of worked for you in the past? Do they represent you well? What's been your experience?
5: We've tried to hire some people in the past, and unfortunately, we're not big enough that we can afford. I think to pay somebody to do what we do, and train them to do what we do, and motivate them to do what we do. So it just kind of became a a situation where we had to go back to basics and, and keep the, the formula simple. And it's working quite well for us, actually, more beneficial than, than the latter. So for now, um, it's just the two of us. It probably will be that way for a few more years, but hopefully we'll, we'll be uh, able to try that again soon.
3: Do you think that not having an extra body may limit your growth?
5: as it stands, it was limiting our growth to have an extra body, so no.
3: Oh, what the extra person was limiting it.
5: Yeah, it was just too, it was like having an extra child that you had to (laughs) hold hands all the time, and it's normal that they weren't as driven as as we expected or wanted them to be, because it's just not their business, you know. It takes
4: a lot of drive and a lot of passion, and we just both happen to have it, which is so lucky in itself just to have the two of us, that to find a third or fourth, it will come down the line. I think organic growth is really important, and we did Try to grow really quickly, mm-hmm. and we had to scale it back, like Ali mentioned. But I think that it, it's definitely going to be a diamond in the rough that we'll have to to search for. Well,
3: you're, you're four years in, and it sounds like you're definitely on the right path. So much success to you! And uh, I, I think it's uh, it's 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 so much to learn and so much to digest. <laughs> so no pun intended in such a in such a short period that there's so much more to come. So,
2: uh, Caroline and Alexandra, obviously in a business that uh, they have to watch uh, restaurant closings very closely. And after the break, we'll talk to Patrick Sullivan, trustee at Fuller Landau, and uh, he'll do a segment called Anatomy of a Restaurant uh, Closing, uh, Restaurant Bankruptcy. So that's coming up because we've, we've had a few of them in Montreal, of course. Mm-hmm. It's uh, 7.45 right now.
1: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
2: Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you, and we're talking wine this evening with Caroline Brownstein and Alexandra Boak of Onivino Wine and Spirits, and because they deal so much with restaurants and occasionally with restaurants going bust, uh, we bring in Patrick Sullivan, trustee at Fuller Landau, to talk about uh, the anatomy, Patrick, of a restaurant bankruptcy, and I'm guessing um, that this happens in Montreal probably a bit more often than most other cities in North America.
0: Uh, good evening, guys. Uh, yes, actually, if you look at statistics, uh, running 12 months out of the total bankruptcies in Quebec, approximately 15% uh, arise from an operation related to food accommodation. So that means there's a lot of openings, but a lot of closures, at least uh,
3: probably an equivalence. No question. Now, usually, what's the what's the biggest pitfall that... A restaurant owner will will find or be slapped in the face with or kind of not realize when when kind of you know the not so good things hit the fan well
0: opening a restaurant is very emotional a lot of people want to become their own operator owner uh and sometimes it's like a second career sometimes it's like my kid went to study in the food industry or became a chef and i'm going to help him i'm going to open up a restaurant uh, a lot of money is invested, obviously, into the leaseholds. Uh, banks are very shy on the financing of restaurants. To say the least. To say the least. Uh, so, I, you know, when things go bad, unfortunately, directors' liabilities come into play. Uh, even more so in that type of industry because there are basically no assets mm-hmm. other than something that's stuck on the wall or the investment that we put on those walls so the nature of the business makes that your suppliers will supply you provided you pay them either cod or within seven days or 14 days or if you're a a long time uh, person in the industry you may get 21 days to pay so suppliers don't support the business that much in terms of credit so where do you get your credit when things start to go slowly you're either going to stop paying your rent you're going to stop paying your deductions at source Definitely, GST QST is going to be the last ones on the on the on the hit list. So when things go bad, obviously directors' liabilities start to kick in. So thinking that you're protected because you've incorporated might not mean
3: much. No, because as you say, the financing isn't so quick to find. So you have to find out your other ways. Unfortunately, people lean on the, these government deductions or these government uh, remittances a little bit too much. And of course, then they have the right to come after the individual, the directors. Do they have the right to come after the shareholders? Shareholders,
0: well, they they they, they don't come after shareholders. They come after directors. Otherwise, uh, a public company that would go bankrupt, uh, a lot of people would be in trouble in certain cases. Uh, And and you know what, we're talking with very small entrepreneurs, very small businesses, so they can't necessarily afford to have liability insurance or director's liability insurance in order to avoid those types of problems. So, I mean, friends, love money, all of that gets blown away, and uh, after a while, well, then you fund yourself with the government when things go bad. It's a question of having the right product, the right place, like you always say, and having the people come in and enjoy themselves.
3: Now the employees goes, you know, place goes bankrupt. Yes. You have the government, but the employees are, you know, do they tend, can they knock on the door and say, Hey, Mr. Owner, Mr. Director, uh, give me, you didn't pay me my vacation. You didn't do me any, you didn't give me the, the, the right amount at the end. When you let me go, what, what can they come back after?
0: Uh, employees are protected to a certain degree, but we have to understand that they're protected based on assets. Uh, Each employee is always entitled to what we call the wage order protection program, the WEP, whereby uh, there's a security up to the tune of $2,000 for unpaid wages and vacations going back six months prior to the event, which in this particular case would be a bankruptcy. But all of this is related to assets. So the government will pay the $2,000 to the employees, but then they will turn around and say, well, I have to recover my money from those assets. I have a super priority. But if there are no assets to be realized on, they will go after the director or directors and sue them for the monies that they will have paid the employees. So indirectly, you have the Commission de Enormes de Travail and you can have also uh, the federal government that will
3: sue you under the WEP program because they didn't recover their monies. Now, you spoke a lot about assets, so when we come back after the break, we'll chat a little bit about the value, or the lack thereof, those assets uh, in a bankruptcy.
2: Trustee Patrick Sullivan on restaurant bankruptcy and Caroline Bramstein and Alexander Boca von Noveno Wine & Spirits in studio this evening on Today's Entrepreneur.
1: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
2: Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD 800 with us uh, this evening, Patrick Sullivan, trustee from Fuller Landau, talking about restaurant bankruptcy. And, of course, Caroline and Alexandra still in studio from uh, OniVino. We'll have their uh, one piece of advice for today's Entrepreneur in a
3: moment. Now, Caroline, Alex, have you guys kind of had to live through a bankruptcy or two or three
4: we have uh, had to live through a few different experiences in the past couple of years. Yes.
3: Did you learn anything specific? Did you change any of your processes, or you just kind of your eyes just got a little bit more wide open?
4: Definitely opened up the eyes for us. Um, I think, like I was saying earlier, we were open to everything in the beginning, and then we started to be a little bit more selective as to who we did business with.
3: Yeah, I'm, I, I'm sure you have to. Now, Patrick, before we you, you know, you kept you kept focusing on the assets of a restaurant and all that. Now, in a bankruptcy, are they worth anything, really? Unfortunately, uh, you know, if I were an auctioneer, I would tell
0: you the market is inundated with restaurant assets uh, from old to brand new, actually. There have been so many foreclosures uh, that, you know, you're, other than the immovables, which are basically rock and fancy lights and these beautiful glasses and everything, what's left? Uh, there's the, the, the kitchen mm-hmm. assets and there's tables and chairs. So, you know, all in all, you're lucky if you realize 10% of the original cost on a liquidation basis and that's really
3: being lucky. That's that's really at best. Does that mean that new restaurant? operators ones that are about to open can actually get a deal on some great assets or go into a location that might have failed before oh absolutely but you, you see the problem is
0: as I was saying it's it's a it's an emotional thing it's a it's a concept it's my own personal concept so it has to be with my own designs so other than buying the kitchen uh, furniture which basically is going to be used to do the processing people have a tendency to want to personalize you know, the looks of the restaurant. So they're not necessarily going to go with second-hand chairs or second-hand tables or, mm-hmm. you know, they'll want to bring in their own concept. Uh, but the, there is a lot of stuff out there on the market. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the the owner of the leased premises will literally buy back the assets and he's going to try to find a turnkey operator and say, here, this is it, and now you operate, and this is the amount of rent you're going to be paying.
3: So much to know, but so little time. As we come to the last moment of the show, we'll turn to Alexandra and Caroline and ask each of you, what would be your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur?
5: So I'm a big fan of fake it till you make it. You know, sometimes it's uh, you wake up and there's a a long day ahead of you and you don't know how you're going to get through, but you just, you put on your smile and you go.
3: (laughs) (laughs) excellent caroline
4: i would say to to do something that you love and it really won't feel like you're doing work at all like i wake up every single morning i'm excited i work really late at night and i genuinely love what I'm doing and uh, i think that's the real secret to success
3: no question and dan we've heard we've heard that I won't say far too often because you can never hear it far too often. But uh, you know the, the passion behind it, and and certainly knowing what you do. And and I think I think the takeaway that I have here is they've paired up. They found a partnership that works. They found a partnership that complement each other, and they don't step on each other's toes. They collaborate and they make themselves better than the two that they are together. Um, notwithstanding the occasional looks they give each other, I so love you, uh, so so kudos to you and, and thanks very much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Caroline Brownstein and Alexandra Boka von Nevinho Wine and Spirits, and thanks to Patrick Sullivan, trustee at For Landau, for the uh, talk about restaurant bankruptcy. Josh back next Monday night at seven p.m. here on News Talk Radio CJAD eight hundred.